Good morning. I'm part of a generation of kids that was raised being taught on uh, transparency paper and overhead projectors. Uh, if you don't know what an overhead projector is, if you're younger than I am, let me tell you, an overhead projector was this big bulky thing that would be on a table and you'd put some transparency paper on this, it would light up and it would project on the screen behind you. This was used in churches to uh, show what the lyrics of the songs were, but it was also used by teachers in schools. And what was great about these is this transparency paper, you were able to um, stack them or layer different um, sheets on top of one another that could separate the parts, but then when you put them all together, you could see a unified whole. Think of the human body in health class. You have one that has the skeletal system, you have another sheet that has the circulatory system, the muscular system, and so on and so forth, and then you can see all of them together, or you can see them all on different pieces of paper in their own parts. This is very much like what we see in Daniel chapter um, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 in the book of Daniel about prophecy. And we're coming to an end of our series, not only for Advents, which is the prophetic portion of Daniel, but going through the whole book of Daniel. And as we've looked at the prophecy, we can see that it's very much like the transparency paper. What Daniel sees is one thing, but as we get some history behind us, we actually start to see that what he saw was multiple layers of different parts that he saw as one event. Now, as we dive a little bit more into chapter 11, and as we bring a closure to our time together, what we see throughout Daniel is that there is a pattern which we as God's people in exile are to expect, but there's also a promise that we are to be encouraged by. A, pro, a pattern to expect and a promise to encourage. And so Daniel chapter 11 is, and 12 is a continuation of one vision that takes up chapters 10, 11, and 12. And so in the continuation, Daniel get, um, continues to see this vision of these wars of this king of the north and the kings of the south. Now, for Daniel, this was a future-oriented vision. Him writing in the 6th century, what took place in chapter 11, primarily in verses 1 through 35, were for him future, but for us they're historical. This, like chapter 8, is telling the rise of kings and kingdoms that would come after the Babylonian Empire, after God's people were to go back into Cyrus. Verse 3 talks about a mighty king. This is Alexander the Great. And these all culminate in a historical character called Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Now, if you were to go into this and you were to line it up with the historical accounts of what happened, it reads like a middle-aged soap opera. You have a king giving his daughter to be married to this other king to form an alliance that goes sour. They try to, they battle, their kids battle, and it ultimately goes to Antiochus IV in the second century BC who ravaged God's people, made Judaism illegal, 
and was part of uh, creating the environment where the Maccabean revolt would take place. And within that, the miracle and the story of Hanukkah was birthed. And so part of the holidays of Hanukkah is found in the book of Daniel and the prophecy that was say. But at, chapter, at verse 36, it breaks off of what we know to be the historical reality of Antiochus. Now, some people look at chapter 11 and 12 and they say, hey, is this about Antiochus IV? Some people think that this is uh, projecting onto the Roman Empire and the ruin that would become of them. And some people think that it's foretelling, even for us today, of a future person, what Second Thessalonians calls the man of lawlessness. Common language for this is the Antichrist, the one figure who would lead many astray and cause much destruction and tribulation against God's people. And so as we get to this, we see that 36 breaks off from what we know about to be true of Antiochus and the Roman Empire. And this is why I think the transparency paper language makes sense is because all that's been taking place for Daniel is future. But we now see that there's something that has not yet been fully accomplished. This is another layer of a unified whole that Daniel saw as one, but are in reality multiple different parts. And so verses 36 through 45 tell of a day that's to come when there will be somebody who stands in opposition to God's kingdom that is in the pattern of Antiochus and Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, and they would lead many astray. But what Daniel's trying to do and write this is not give us a detailed account of exactly how that would be. If you, if you venture into the end times or eschatology, which is the study of the end times, you have all these people trying to create timelines and try to figure out exactly how all this plays out. But that's not what God is using Daniel to accomplish. He's not trying to get you to figure out all the specifics of what are to come. What this is culminating is showing this pattern that's to be expected. And the pattern is that there are kings and kingdoms, all of them that are in opposition to God and got his kingdom, all of them eventually become beasts. We see this in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He uh, indoctrinates God's people. He forces to, um, the Chaldeans of the day to not only interpret his dream in chapter 2, but tell him his dream. And if they don't, off with their heads, they're dead. He forces people to worship him, and three of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, don't do it, and in a furious rage, he forces them into the fiery furnace. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar's story ends with him looking around the, his city and saying, look at what I've done. Look at what I've built. Look at my glory. And he not only figuratively, but literally goes crazy. God judges him and he becomes a beast until he repents and God restores him. This is the same pattern you see with Belshazzar. He goes and he chooses what's right. He takes the gold vessels from the temple in chapter 5. He drinks them and he throws this big party. And God, in a vision, sends a writing on the wall that Daniel has to interpret. 
Belshazzar does not repent, does not put himself back in right relationship, and he's killed that very night. All of this shows us a pattern of kings and kingdoms that become beasts. What do I mean by that? First of all, uh, these beasts, they deny God's kingdom. They think their kingdom, their values, their principles are more important than God's values. Okay? Secondly, they set up their own uh, standard of what is right versus wrong. Okay? This is recreating of truth. And third, they glorify their own power. Look at how great I am. Look at how great we are. This is the pattern that Daniel shows us that all kings and leaders and uh, kingdoms and empires, this is the pattern that all of them will happen. So this should not surprise us, God's people, who like Daniel and his friends are in exile. We are in a foreign land and every Christian, in every day, in every era, in every empire or country are exiles. And so we should not be surprised, but we can actually expect to to see the empires and to see the kings of our day want to make it all about themselves. Look at my glory. They, and they draw people to be worship them rather than worship the one true God. To fight for them. To die for them. Rather than, as God's people, to place our faith and our allegiance into God as king and his kingdom as our way of life. So this is a pattern that we should not be surprised by, but it's also a pattern that's very, very tempting to fall into. Our call as God's people is to be citizens of heaven, to live according to the standards and the ethics that Jesus lays out in his teaching, ultimately seen in the Sermon on the Mount. This is his vision of human flourishing that we talked about for so much in the spring. Now, we have a choice. Will we follow in the kingdom of God in its principles? Will we fully place our allegiance in something else? Or what I think is even more tempting is to synchronize the two. Are our lives lived that people look at them and it look at our lives and it will demand a gospel explanation? That we don't buy into the pattern. We don't buy into the polarization that this pattern has exposed in our day. That our lives, what we say, how we live, how we love our enemies, cannot fit so snugly into any person, uh, policy, platform, or party. But what we do transcends all those things. We seek its welfare. We are present among it as this pattern takes place around it. But we don't buy into it. We don't synchronize it where the kingdom and platform become so intertwined you can't separate it. Where we prophetically speak to all political parties and all political platforms because none of them 
are the kingdom of God and fully emulate its principles. So this is a pattern that Daniel is laying out that we should not be surprised by. And we shouldn't be surprised by when that day comes, if it were to be happening in our lifetime or not, when the ultimate man of lawlessness, the one that is the culmination of this fullness of the pattern, sets himself up against God, his people, and God's kingdom, and will be destroyed. And that leads us into the promise. The pattern that kings and kingdoms will become beasts, but this is the promise that is the foundation for what Daniel was teaching and for what holds us. And that promise that is to encourage us is in the resurrection. And we see that one of the only places in all of the Bible, oh, excuse me, in all of the Old Testament that speaks to resurrection in verse 2 of chapter 12. This is what it says. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The sleep is a language of, of death. But when you come awake in the light of that sleep, this is not saying, hey, you woke up in the morning. This is a picture of bodily resurrection, of a, day, of a day that is to come when God's people will resurrect. Now, all of this ultimately points to Jesus. Jesus is the one that does away with the beasts, ultimate beasts of sin, Satan, and death. Jesus demolishes. He completely defeats. He is now placed above all rule and power and authority in the heavenly places, it says in Ephesians. So Jesus defeated them on the cross and in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about how this is our hope. And if our hope is that Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are to be most pitied. But Daniel culminates in a resurrection hope that we have seen as Jesus being the first fruits when he rose from the dead that first Easter morning. And so resurrection has come and it is to come. Jesus being the first fruits means that you and I and all those who have professed faith in Jesus, whether asleep or alive, will be resurrected and in his new heaven and new earth, given new bodies to live in this recreated, renewed heaven and earth with him forever. It talks about this in Revelation 21 and 22. And this is our hope that is to encourage us. This is the hope that was for Daniel and his listeners. Don't be surprised when kings and kingdoms do what kings and kingdoms are patterned to do. So what hope does, it grounds us in the present. What do I mean by that? Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the city in which you are sent as exiles. So we aren't to be so removed from the presence that we're of no earthly good. No, we're to seek its welfare. We're to bless it. We, as God's people, are blessed to be a blessing. And so we seek its welfare. We seek its good. We, we want good for our city and our nation. But the grounding in this present is ultimately because 
we are guarded and we are expecting for the future. We're present in the reality of this kingdom of the world, but it ultimately we are hoping and resting in and trusting in the future reality of that. So what do we do in the midst of that? I had this conversation with a friend this week talking about suffering. Uh, and for many, 2020 has been a year of great suffering, financial. Your families have been pulled apart for various things. Um, you may have contracted or know somebody with COVID, um, all the turmoil of our day. So lots of suffering. And so asking the question, like, what, is, what does God do about the suffering? How does his perfection line up with the suffering of the world? And so we talked about it, but one of the things that I highlighted that I believe is unique to the Christian faith is that God of the Bible is one that's able to empathize and sympathize in suffering. He's not some far distant removed being that just lets it work out. He's intimately acquainted with it because what we celebrate now in Advent is Jesus came he was born, but he had no place to lay his head, a prophecy said. He ultimately died on a cross, an unjust death. He was tempted in every way you and I are, but without sin. He was tempted to power. He was tempted to deny God's kingdom. He was tempted to set up his own standard of right and wrong. He was tempted to become a beast. And yet, he was without sin. But he, in the midst of that, he experienced the suffering of humanity. Think of the story of uh, his friend Lazarus. He shows up, and what does he do? He weeps. He sees Jerusalem as he walks in in Holy Week, and he weeps over the city, saying, Oh, if you only listened, and I was able to draw you under my wings. He knows human suffering, and he's experienced it himself, because he took on flesh, but he also took on sin on the cross. And so as we are sent in exile, as we are seeing the pattern that's to be expected, we have this God who is present with us by his spirit. We have a great high priest, the scripture says in Hebrews, that is tempted in every way and yet was without sin. So he's now interceding with us, for us, to the Father, praying that good things would happen for us. He's with us in the moment. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. But it's not just in the presence of here, but it's in the hope of the future. That's what we have. That is what dis makes us different. And Daniel ends with these, like um, in verse uh, six, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? That's our cry. How long? It's the cry of lament. And at the end of verse 13, it says, but go your way till the end and you shall rest and still stand in your allotted place at the end of days. In essence, we wait. This is what Advent is. We wait. We long for Jesus to return. We long for Jesus to renew and restore. 
and yet we have this pattern that's to be expected and this promise that encourages us while we wait, while we experience God's comfort now, we wait for Him and we long for Him to come and renew and restore all of it. And so I don't know what you need to wait in right now, what you're longing to be fulfilled. I don't know what pain and suffering you have specifically experienced in this year. But our hope is not that the calendar will change from 2020 to 2021. Our hope is in not new elected officials. Our hope is in the one who defeated sin, sin, and death and will ultimately defeat the man of lawlessness. Our hope is in that that same one became sin and paid the penalty for your and my sin and that rose again, defeating all of sin, Satan, and death, and who will one day come to renew and restore all of it. So brothers and sisters, as we wait, that is our hope. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you are our hope. You are the God of all hope. And so as we wait, as we long for you to return, I pray that you are present with us in our pain and suffering and our sadness. But you give us the courage and encouragement that it will not always be like this. And that is the fuel that will keep us being faithful to you. So we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.